Our scripture reading today is from James chapter 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The word of the Lord. Hearing that read, that is some serious words from the Lord there. Um, I'm going to try and do them justice. I thought I would start with a lighthearted story, and then I heard those words read. It's like, wow, that's a very jarring transition. Um, but I think maybe I've softened it by now, so here we go with some lightheartedness. Um, <laughs> this past week, uh, my family was uh, enjoying a dinner, as we do typically on most weeknights, and we were actually finishing up dinner and sort of basking in the afterglow of having just enjoyed our meal together. And our children are now of age to where it's their responsibility to take care of dish duty following dinner, which is a lovely addition to the afterglow and basking uh, that we so typically enjoy. And this was boys' night, which meant that our six-year-old and our nine-year-old were tasked with clearing the table uh, and then doing the dishes. And they did they cleared the table well. I think their sisters may have even lent a hand in kindness. Uh, and so all was right with the world. Everything was ordered and flowing just as it should. We were enjoying that moment after you eat and begin to digest. And then we began to hear a fracas break out, a ruckus break out in the kitchen. There was arguing taking place in the kitchen between our two sons. And our younger son, our six-year-old Bodhi, emerged back from the kitchen into the dining room and reported that to he and his brother's horror, the dishwasher required emptying. Now, this was not in the fine print of the initial contract for them to do the dishes on that evening. Uh, And so they were bargaining as to how to address this horror, uh, this added duty and burden on them. Uh, And the older brother, the nine-year-old Micah, had suggested that perhaps... Uh, he emptied the dishwasher single-handedly, and then Bodhi do the dishes. <laughs> it seemed fair in Micah's mind. Uh, Bodhi was not too pleased with that, and so he was appealing to a higher court coming into the dining room and asking for some assistance from his parents. And so I hollered into the kitchen uh, in very Solomonic sage wisdom, fatherly wisdom, father of the year, quite frankly, if you ask me. Um, Micah, I'd like you and Bodhi to do the whole chore together. I want you to empty the dishwasher together, and I want you to do the dishes then together. And my phenomenal attorney of a nine-year-old uh, responded in earnest, uh, but Bodhi is not any good at emptying the dishwasher. <laughs> um, and so I told him, Well, Micah, teach him. And that seemed like a reasonable response to me. But then words proceeded to emerge from my nine-year-old's mouth that I thought I would never hear. Micah said, I'm not any good at teaching. 
Now, if you know Micah, you know that it is shocking to hear him acknowledge that he's not any good at anything. My son lacks not in confidence. He is a rather confident young lad. The first basket that he scored during the basketball season of the first game this past year, he scored one basket in the game. Uh, and then after the game, began comparing himself to LeBron and Michael Jordan. Uh, he took up hockey this season, and they stuck him in goalie. It's his first time playing floor hockey. He's playing goalie. In their first game of the year, he had three saves. I was proud of him. They lost 16 to nothing. Um, and he <laughs> began to articulate how he was among the greatest of all time. So he, he lacks not <laughs> in confidence. So to hear him say, I'm not good at teaching, was a bit striking, a bit off-putting, and I felt like he had overstepped. I felt like I had him at this point. And so I went in for the win, and I said, Micah, I thought you were good at everything. (laughs) Got him. All right, totally got him. Or so I thought. He said, no, not things that help people. All right? (laughs) Touche, son. Touche, right? I thought I had trapped him in a web of his own conceit, and he upped the ante and trapped me in a web of my own theology, right? Because he's exactly right. He's not good at things that help people. <laughs> and in fact, none of us are, right? He had me dead to rights. We are not born with a natural inclination or ability to help people. If you doubt that, just watch children play. Watch any group of children play. They are adorable, precious little narcissists. (laughs) They are thinking entirely of themselves as they enter into play. In fact, we're born into the world, every one of us, with the absolute conviction that the world revolves around us. And that's understandable in some ways. Because the only thing that we feel, the only needs that we feel from day one are our own. So we come into the world feeling our own hunger and feeling our own pain and feeling our own exhaustion. And so we make a conclusion very early on in life that the goal and purpose of life is I've got to get mine. That really the purpose of life could be defined by two simple maxims, seek pleasure and avoid pain. And then we then live according to those maxims. Seek pleasure and avoid pain. As we grow, those become more sophisticated. We become more nuanced in our expression of that. We learn, for example, that we need to at least pretend that we are not narcissists in order to avoid the discomfort or the pain of loneliness. No one wants to play with a narcissist. And so we go through a bit of socialization where we learn how to play with others. We learn how to be in such a way that would include others, that would have others like us or befriend us so that we're not ostracized, so that we're not out on our own. But what this does then is it leads to a very kind of transactional understanding of relationships. Right? Our socialization, our learning of how to get along with others, it doesn't cure us of our narcissism. It just makes our narcissism more obscured, more subtle. And we wind up with this very transactional relational nature wherein we are willing to help others, we're willing to do things for the good of others, 
if we can see that there's going to be some return on my investment. All right, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. And this then becomes the way that we engage with one another. We move toward people for whom we see there's some mutually beneficial reason, that we're going to get something back in return, at least of equal value, if not greater value. And this then is the way that the world works. This is the way that people generally relate to one another in a very transactional way. It's actually the way that we run our economy, right? We provide goods and services to one another with the expectation that I receive something in return of equal or greater value. It's a fine way to run the world so far as it goes. In fact, that kind of market idea, that transactional nature of relationships has enabled our nation, for example, to build fabulous wealth. Fabulous wealth. So what's wrong with that? Well, nothing per se. The trouble is that it does nothing to address that initial narcissism within us. And as narcissists begin to accumulate wealth and power, they then invariably leverage that wealth and power to more and more tilt their relational transactions into their favor. And so as we gain, as we succeed, as we build wealth, we then use that to our benefit and ultimately often to the great harm of the least vulnerable. People who don't have the wealth or power to tilt those transactions back into a greater equity are then taken advantage of. And so the most vulnerable in our world wind up being taken advantage of by those who are succeeding, by simply this narcissistic tendency to continually leverage wealth and power into greater transactional benefit for ourselves. Now, some of you, no doubt, are sitting here thinking, that's not me. (laughs) Thanks be to God when that text from James was read a little bit earlier, bringing fire and brimstone onto the heads of those who are wealthy. I was not included in that number because I'm not wealthy. I'm not among the powerful. Well, if you get an opportunity, maybe later today, Maybe now, if you need to, to slow yourself down, uh, check the tag on your clothing or your shoes or perhaps your smartphone. And what will you find there? Invariably, you will find made in Indonesia, made in China, made in Taiwan. Right? Why is it that our clothing and our gadgets are made halfway around the world? Well, it's because we cannot convince Americans to make those things for us for pennies on the dollar. We can't talk any Americans into doing that. Why is that? Because Americans have enough power, have enough opportunity, have enough choices to say, no, we won't make those things for pennies on the dollar. By contrast, workers in Indonesia or China or Taiwan don't have that power. And so when we offer them the opportunity to make our gadgets and our clothing for pennies on the hour, they accept that. They receive that. They have no alternative. 
They have no power to tilt that transaction toward greater equity. And so we are able to take advantage of that great wealth and power that our nation possesses in order that we might be able to buy a shirt for $12, for example, or always be sure that our gadgets cost less than $1,000, that our pocket-sized flat-screen supercomputers can be ours for the tune of $600 instead of what they would cost were they made in America, five grand or more. And why are we doing this? Why are we leveraging our power and our wealth to more greatly advantage ourselves? Well, it's because we want to stretch further what is our standard of living, what is our normal practice. Most of us in this room live on somewhere between 100 to 200 or even more dollars per day, and we want to stretch that even further. Half the world's population, more than 3 billion people, live on less than $6 a day, and we pay them that. That's what we're willing to pay them so that we can stretch our $100, $200 a day into what? More travel, eating out, joining a gym, seeing a therapist, owning a larger home, buying our children nice things. This is the system that is perpetuated by the universal narcissism of the human spirit, the condition that we are all born into, and we are all participants in it. We are all part of it. It's beyond any one of us changing. It's the nature of our broken reality that people who gain power and wealth then use that power and wealth to further leverage their advantage in the world to the detriment of those who are least powerful, to those who are most vulnerable, to those who have no opportunity to push back. What are we doing at the end of the day? We're living out that initial philosophy. Seek pleasure, avoid pain. Nothing has really changed for us at all. It's that maxim, those two maxims that make the world go around. Anybody feeling bothered yet? <laughs> like, I came to church, I wanted to hear about the grace of God, and now you're talking about this stuff that just makes me feel like garbage. Can I tell you who's bothered the most by it? It's God. God is bothered by this far more than any of us are. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. These are strong words. We're, we're in the final chapter of the New Testament book of James, uh, this great New Testament letter written by James. And James has spent the bulk of the previous four chapters 
instructing Christians in the Christian life, instructing us in what it looks like to live in Christ, to walk out the Christian faith. He's been telling us that it looks like care for the poor, that it looks like humility, that it looks like controlled speech, that it looks like endurance amid trials, looks like wisdom. He's been telling us that living out the Christian life looks like walking in the ways of God, living in the very life of God, living in the very heart and mind of God. And now here in chapter 5 of James, he is turning to decry what it is that God opposes. So he spent four chapters speaking to us of what it is that pleases God, what it is that God would have us do, how he wants us to live, to walk in his ways and to uphold his being. But here he turns and says, here is what God opposes. And to do this, James takes on the persona of an Old Testament prophet, embodying God's anger at injustice and oppression. It can be really easy, actually, to look out and see all of the injustice and oppression in the world that seems to just go on and on unabated. It seems as though there's no one really doing anything about it. It can be easy upon seeing that to conclude that God doesn't care. But that's a mistake. God's prophets have spoken regarding injustice, regarding the oppression that takes place throughout the world, and they've spoken with one voice over the centuries. James here is assuming that same voice. He's speaking those same kinds of words that the prophets of God have always spoken regarding God's regard for the injustice and oppression of the world, and he is telling us that those who leverage their wealth to harm have a day of reckoning coming. That is what the voice of God has spoken over the earth for millennia. That's what he's always said. He's spoken that one word, that those who oppress, that those who perpetrate injustice have a day of reckoning coming. James says, you've harmed innocent people who could not resist you. That's how he closes this section. He says, he could not resist you. It really better translated, who could not resist you? These vulnerable, these marginalized people groups that are being harmed and oppressed in the time of James, much like those vulnerable people groups that are harmed in our time, have no power, have no leverage at their disposal to push back and resist against this oppression and injustice. And God says the cries of these oppressed have reached his ears. He says through James, James says, the cries of these oppressed have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. What's that title? What's in that title? The Lord of hosts. What does that mean? Why is God referring to himself in that way? Why is James referring to God in that way? Well, the hosts referred to here are the armies of God, the angelic armies of God. The picture that's being offered here is of God as a general over his great armies posed for battle. This is an image of a warrior God who is angry over the injustice in the world. It's the same image that Moses gives in the story of the Exodus, famous passage, Exodus 15.3, 
the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Verse 6 of that same chapter, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. It's the same image of God that's painted in the prophecies of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 42, the Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. And again, the prophet Malachi, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. James is carrying on this long tradition, this tradition that extends throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, throughout the prophetic history, the tradition of God's prophetic words to his people, this notion that God is angry over injustice. James here is embodying, he's capturing the anger of God that's been stirred up, that's been kindled on account of the injustice in the world. Now, the anger of God, it's not something that we typically talk about in polite company. It's unnerving, actually, to talk about the anger of God. We would much prefer to keep our eyes and our focus on the mercy of God. We love to talk about the mercy of God, to reassure one another of the mercy of God, because... If God is one who is angry about oppression, if he's one who's angry about injustice, then who among us can stand? We feel the fire of that anger, that anger from the all-powerful God. Are we not all participants in this system of leveraged narcissism that defines the world? and winds up hurting and oppressing people. Shouldn't these thoughts of the anger of God strike terror in all of us? Well, yes. Contemplating his anger at oppression, it's not meant to be a pleasant thought. But it should be a comforting thought. Okay, We don't often contemplate the anger of God because it's not pleasant, but we don't contemplate it to our great detriment because contemplating his anger has within it the potential to bring great comfort. I want you to think of the last time that you felt anger over some injustice. Maybe it was an injustice similar to the kind that James is speaking of here, a kind of universal economic oppression. Maybe you noticed that there were certain people groups throughout the world or even in our nation or in our city that were particularly harmed or oppressed, that had no way out, that were marginalized in some way, that was unfair. Or maybe it was something more local than that, something more personal, just the direct mistreatment of someone against you or against someone that you care about. Maybe it was mistreatment from someone who shouldn't be mistreating you, a friend, a spouse, someone that you trust. 
someone that you expected support from. Maybe it was someone who simply didn't follow through on their word. They said they would do something, they didn't follow through, and now as a result, you are hurt or people are hurt. What'd you do with the anger? You think about the last time that you experienced or witnessed injustice. What'd you do with the anger? Where did it go? What became of it? I can tell you, uh, for my part, when anger bubbles up in me, I either lash out in words or deeds that cut someone down, cut down the person responsible for the injustice, retaliate against the person responsible for the injustice, or more often, in my case, I distract myself long enough for it to feel as though the anger has faded. Of course, the anger never fades. It just buries itself deep into my soul and then begins to wreak havoc on all my other relationships until I'm left utterly confused. Why do I have so little patience for my wife? Why am I so short with my kids? What's going on in me? This repressed anger leaking out in every direction. What other avenue is there? For our anger, other than to lash out or to stuff it? Is there anything else that we can do with it? I mean, it's an absolutely sure thing that this world will provoke us to anger. This world will provoke you and me to anger. How can it not? Injustice abounds, injustice is everywhere. People are wronging each other and wronging us all the time, both personally and systemically. If we care at all, then anger will be our reaction. Okay, the only way that you can eradicate anger from your person is to shut off everything in you that cares. Turn yourself into someone who does not care. And let me strongly discourage you from taking that road. That is the road toward nihilism. That is the road toward despair. That is the road that leaves you unsure whether life is worth living. Okay, Anger is a sign that you still care. Anger is a sign that this world is still full of people and things that matter to you, that mean something to you. It's a sign that your own life matters to you, that your own life means something to you. Well, so what do we do then with our anger? If anger is the reaction of a healthy, present, caring person to injustice in the world, even the reaction that we see come from the heart of God, then what do we do with the anger? Well, it's important to note James is writing his letter not to wealthy people like you and me. This book of James is not directed toward the rich. He's writing to impoverished, oppressed people. That's who the Christians were 
in the first century. They were marginalized people. They were people who were victims of oppression. So this prophetic rant against wealthy oppressors from James actually isn't meant for the ears of the wealthy oppressors. James doesn't have in mind that those who are oppressing the early Christians, the first century Christians, will read this charge, will read this rebuke. He actually has in mind that the oppressed people, the marginalized people, will be reading this rebuke against wealthy oppressors. It's for the ears of the oppressed. James is telling people who are being mistreated, God knows your anger. Not God knows that you're angry. No, God knows your anger. God is angry too. God is with you in that anger. He feels every bit of it. In fact, he's more angry because he cares more for you even than you do for yourself. The height of anger is indicative of how much care is in the heart. And God sees every injustice that you endure, and he feels it in his chest. It's kindled in him by the injustice of the world. Why would it be so important for oppressed people to know that God is angry? Because anger is a burden too heavy to carry for too long. Anger, our anger, actually demands to be unloaded or it will crush us. So to know that God sees, to know that God cares, that God is angry, it's actually an invitation to offload our anger to him. in the knowledge that he will hold it, that he feels it, that it has a place to land, that it has a place to go. God tells his people repeatedly throughout the centuries by his prophets that he is angry on their behalf. He's holding the scales of justice for us. He knows. He sees. It's not on us to hold it. You see what that means for us? It means that we can let it go. It means that we don't have to hold it. We can release the anger that binds us. You can release the anger that crushes you. The anger that's too heavy for you to hold. The anger that you have no other alternative than to lash out with or stuff deep inside you, now there's a third way. You can hand it over to the God who feels it with you and then melt into the grief and sorrow that you actually need. If you've been wronged deeply, and we all have been at some point in our lives, to varying degrees, we've experienced injustice or at least witnessed it against those that we love, then you need the healing of grief. You need to begin to integrate that hurt into your story 
in a way that allows you to find life in the wounded place. To find that there's life after having been wounded in that way. And that it's not less life. It's rich, full life. That's what the process of grief is. The process of grief is integrating those injustices, those wounds, those painful things in your story into your story heading forward so that meaningful, rich life can be there for you. Anger arrests us. Anger stops the story. Anger demands satisfaction before we can step forward into more life. It insists on satisfaction. It insists that the scales of justice be balanced. And we're stuck there then. We're stuck there in that place, unable to walk forward into rich new life, unable to step into even richer life than we knew before. And God is saying, I'll hold that for you. I'll take that for you so that you can melt into the healing waters of sorrow. Sorrow and grief is where we are healed. It's where we learn to integrate those wounds, those injustices into our story, to make sense of them, to begin to walk forward even in the face of them, to see that the ways that we have been scarred are not the end of our lives. They cannot take our life. There's rich, full life in the wounded place. And so God says to us, leave it to me. I know what to do with anger. See, we don't know what to do with anger. God says, I know what to do with anger. Give your anger to me. Let me carry that for you. As for you, the next verse following James' rant against oppressors, he then speaks directly to those who've been hurt. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient, therefore, sisters, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient, you who have been harmed, you who have been oppressed, you who have been mistreated, until the coming of the Lord. God says, I see it all. I will do right. Justice will come. It is not on you to ensure that that takes place. Only wait for me. Don't go chasing the satisfaction that anger requires on your own. It will crush you. It will destroy you. We aren't strong enough to hold that burden. Pastor and author Tim Keller says, God hates the suffering and oppression of this material world so much, he was willing to get involved in it and fight against it. God's involved. He does care. You don't have to carry it alone. God's anger is kindled. And unlike us, most importantly, unlike us, he knows what to do with anger. 
God knows a third way. He knows how to handle anger in a way that we could not even dream. Thanks be to God, he will not finally lash out at oppressors. Who could stand? If God set out to balance all the scales of justice, who among us could avoid condemnation? Yet, he will not sweep any injustice under the rug. This is what's so astonishing and unique about God. He holds all of the injustice, all of the oppression, all of the resulting anger of the world right in himself. He swallows it whole. He swallows it all into his belly and he buries it in the ground. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is God in the flesh, swallowing the injustice and the reaction of anger against it into his very person such that it wrecks him from the inside out, such that he is crushed by it. All of the injustice in the world, all of the blood that your heart cries out for, that that righteous indignation longs for, has been spilt. There is no more need for blood. Enough blood is already in the ground. The blood of God himself, the blood of the Lord Jesus. He has taken all the injustice, all the impression into himself. There's more than enough blood that's been given. So give it up. Give it up. The healing waters of sorrow are waiting for you. The healing waters of grief are there for you to step into and to begin to experience life again. And you're not alone in that. We grieve together and God with us. Let's pray. Father, for those among us who are carrying weights of injustice committed against them, committed against people whom they love, I pray that you would meet the brokenhearted among us. For those who are filled with anger at injustice, I pray that you would offer yourself by your spirit that we would hand that over to you, that we would discover healing and grief and that the wounds that have been committed against us cannot steal our life because you have swallowed it all whole. Lord, give us faith to trust you in the sin committed against us and in the sins that we commit that we would not be people first concerned with changing the world, but people first concerned with seeing that you have already rescued it and overcome it for us. Teach us to live in that healing, to live in that rest, and to offer it to each other. In Christ's name, amen.